1: Welcome to the Stranded Technologies Podcast. I'm your host and founder of Infinita Fund, Nicholas Ansinger. In this show, we talk about how to accelerate the future. Our thesis is that many life-improving technologies are held back by institutional barriers. How can we unblock vast opportunities while mitigating against the risks? What ethical principles, rules, and regulations can guide us on that path? We will discuss these questions with entrepreneurs, policymakers, and industry experts. If you enjoy the show, please give us five stars and visit us at infinitafund.com to join the community. Today is December the 8th and 2022 and my guest is Eli Durado. Eli is Senior Research Fellow at the Center for Growth and Opportunity at Utah State University. Eli is also a blogger, investor and self-described regulatory hacker. Today we're going to have a conversation about many things technology, innovation and regulatory bottlenecks. Eli is certainly somewhat of a micro-celebrity among people like me who care about technological progress. His breadth of knowledge across many different fields is breathtaking. <laughs> Unfortunately, we'll only get to talk about a few of them depending on time, but the range of topics includes aviation, energy, housing, cryptocurrency, biotech, cybersecurity. He's a long-and-waited awaited oft-requested guest. Eli, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. This is going to be great. For sure. Eli, besides what I said, what else would you like listeners to know about you?
0: I'm an economist by training, right? So I got my PhD in economics. And what I really think of myself as doing is just taking a bit of a normative and applied perspective on economics, right? So what matters to me as an economist is economic growth. And I see my career as trying to get economic growth moving again after the the great stagnation. And so a lot of what where that has taken me is developing strongly held views about what the future could be like because I, I believe we won't do anything if we don't have concrete views so i think that it's very common among libertarians and economists to have a hands-off approach that the market can, will just magically do a lot of good things and i think there is some merit to that view, right? I think that, that there is a decentralized, invisible hand that, that coordinates human activity, but that only goes so far, and we can't just we can't just sit back and say, "Oh, all we need to do is get government out of the way, and everything will be fine." In fact, there's a lot of societal stasis that the government is responding to demand as well, right? And there is demand for a sort of a static world, and we have to overcome that. And part of that is. Knowing the future that we're going to build for,
1: yeah, someone's got to do it. Right? Someone's <laughs> build it. So you've also traversed between the private sector and now, I think I believe a public university. So where or what in your career? Where do you see the big levers that you can pull to achieve technological progress through your work?
0: Yeah, I've had, I guess I've had different kinds of success at different in different points. Right, my first success in technology policy was. Kind of before I made this shift to physical world technology and when I was at the Mercado Center, I was on like a State Department delegation that helped negotiate a international treaty on, on telecommunications. Basically, if you heard the story of the UN was trying to take over the Internet, that was true and I was there and, you know, I helped stop it. I like, want to
1: hear that story. <laughs>
0: Uh, So I wrote it up for Ars Technica. It's really long, but if you look up, if you search Ars Technica 2012, Eli Dorado, you can have my story of how I ended up negotiating an international treaty in Dubai on where we basically saved the internet. So my colleague, Jerry Brito, and I basically started leaking documents from this meeting. And we basically said, hey, here, we didn't hide behind pseudonyms or anything. We said, these are our names. This website is not affiliated with our employer. But if you have documents related to this meeting and you would like us to host them, we will do it. And we started getting documents posted online, bringing increased awareness about what was going on and to these to these discussions that was not very that was not very transparent and and bring bringing so I had some success bringing awareness to it and then got I had a little state department outreach to us as, a, as people who were concerned about this meeting and attended some meetings there when they were like we're starting to put together an advisory committee for this and then we were starting to put together a delegation for this. I I was like, I raised my hand. I said, I'll I'll participate and got deeply involved in it and just kept, again, like kept pulling the string until like I was in the meeting. I was like leaking, like with the US government's knowledge was like leaking stuff with my official credentials and uh, including discussion drafts, some very nasty documents that were by Middle Eastern and and, uh, Russia and China and so on. And put those documents online really drew a lot of attention to it. And it helped the negotiations. But in the end, what was interesting was that the authoritarian regimes, like even after they caved on a few things, in the end, they went too far right at the last minute. And that gave the US and Europe cover to just completely withdraw from the negotiations, which is what happened. So it was a real, it was a really great success because we watered what was going to, what was going to be agreed to in the first place. And then we didn't agree to it, which is like, it's like a 10 out of 10 in terms of the results that we could have hoped for going in. The yeah, play that
1: you pull. So that's something that I've also encountered from my previous work. I was also a trends and economist. I was in DC in the policy world, afterwards in the private sector. It always seemed to me in the private sector you can build great companies. So that can achieve a big lasting impact. And then the policy world there are these rare moments when something big is happening. And then you should be prepared to be at the right place at the right time and say the right things.
0: Yeah, yeah. So the lesson, again, I take away from that is just, just don't stop. Like I could have stopped after like we got a little media attention for the initial website and I just kept going. So I think that would be so that's the usual lesson I get when I tell that story. And then I spent a few years at Boom and there I think the lesson was just try a bunch of things, right? So I was the first policy hire at boom. And we were dealing with a time at a time when FAA's stated policy was that landing and takeoff noise for supersonic airplanes was going to have to be the same as for subsonic airplanes, which there's a whole bunch of physical reasons why that doesn't make sense or that doesn't work well. And basically I came in there and without really like much of a strategy of what we were going to do. And we just had to try a bunch of things until we figured out what worked and what ended up working was applying early for type cert so that um, we came in under a deadline under international rules. And then at the same time that we, because we applied early, FAA kind of had to sit down and figure out what their rules were. And another thing that we'd been doing in parallel was creating allies in Congress. And so FAA was like, aware that the Congress and the administration were paying attention to this issue. And so that that kind of, I don't think it forced their hand or anything, but but they, they knew that this is something that the rest of the government wanted to see go well. And so that got us to the point where there was a legal memo saying, okay, we're, this is the new policy. Here, here's how we're going to handle applicants for type cert and especially on noise certification or anywhere where, where firm rules were not or don't already exist. And so it was, I think, I think that was just like, we had to try a bunch of things. We didn't know which combination of the things that we were going to try was going to work. And so we just tried all of them until they until some combination of them worked. And, and so that would be like another yeah. piece so, of it. Yeah.
1: So Boom is a company that does supersonic flight, right? Jets. That's right. And the obstacle was a policy around noise. So you're not allowed to go up yes. a certain noise level. And On landing
0: and takeoff noise, strictly, mm-hmm. not like Sonic Boom. Noise. Mm -hmm.
1: That basically prevented the development, or probably did for a long time, I think, ready piece, of supersonic flight. And you as working in public policy at Boom, you were able to achieve what's the status of supersonic flight right Uh, now?
0: The state the legal status of this is that the FAA's legal position is that if you are an applicant as a supersonic airliner, they will come up with if no general rules exist, they will come up with specific rules that are tailored to to the needs of your program to make sure that you can be. That's uh, interesting. You, it's like a you, flexible the, so can, regulatory anyway. option. It, it's flexible. I mean, it's flexible within the parameters set out by statute, which actually are, I think, pretty good, right? The statute says that you have to be economic. It has to be the rules have to be environmental rules, especially have to be economically reasonable, technologically practical and appropriate for the aircraft design while protecting the environment, which I think that's all we all want (laughs) or wanted all along. And that is a good like paradigm, I think that FAA has for that. So it worked out really well. But yeah, my my sort of, I think that by being in that role, to get back to your original question, I think that we had a lot of leverage, right? I had written a previous paper on supersonics at the Mercado Center, and it got some attention within DOT and within FAA. And so on. But then going in as the representative of a company that's, we are actually trying to do this, like that, that carries a little bit more weight sometimes. And so I think that is a valuable experience to have. We
1: already went deep into a couple of examples of regulatory hacking. <laughs> to take one step back, can you lay out the bigger picture? Why is economic growth important? What is total factor productivity? What is the great stagnation?
0: Yeah. So economic growth is important because. It either directly leads to or correlates very strongly with everything we care about, right? Uh, if you care about like your material situation, right? You care about economic productivity, right? Or GDP and total factor productivity, which I'll explain in a minute. And, but it also, I think even, I think there's a lot of people who say economics isn't everything, right? What I care about is spending time with my grandchildren or having a long and fulfilling life, right? Well, you know, you're going to have more time to spend with your grandchildren if we have faster economic growth, because part of that means that we're going to have a research and development into drugs that extend your lifespan and your health span, more importantly. So if you want to play soccer with your grandchildren, like you might be able to do that better if we have growth going on now. So I think that, and I think also economic growth also, I think, correlates with political stability, right? Like none of us want to live through a time of deep political turbulence where society is falling apart and so on. I think that political stability is a function of everybody's life getting better at at an above average sort of rate, right? If expectations are met and exceeded in the material world, I think that leads to social harmony. So that's like another reason. There's a bunch of direct, there's a clear direct reason that economic growth is important. And there's a lot of indirect reasons. And so I would always be in favor of counting both the, the direct and the indirect because because I, mm-hmm. I don't I think some people sometimes people caricature the need for faster growth. So what is total factor productivity? So obviously we can increase GDP a bunch of different ways, right? We can increase GDP by just simply growing the population, right? You have more workers, more laborers. We can grow GDP by we all work longer hours, we take less vacation, we work nights and weekends, and so on. We can increase. GDP by over some sort of medium term, we can increase GDP by just saving more, right? By not consuming the fruits of our labor and just plowing it right back into production. And so what total factor productivity does is it, it abstracts the growth that we really want from those sort of forms of growth, right? We can, obviously you can increase GDP by, by saving more or working longer hours, but that's not what we actually want. We want to consume and we want to be, have leisure time. And so what total factor productivity does is it estimates how much output can you give get for a fixed basket of inputs. So if you're holding roughly constant, the inputs that you have, how much, how many dollars of GDP can you get out of it? And is that number going up over time or down over time? And so what happened historically in the US was that from about 1920 to the early 1970s, total factor productivity was growing at 2% per year, year after year, pretty consistently. And in the early 1970s, there was this, uh, there was a change and it started to grow more slowly. It was about like 1% or less, just under 1% from sort of 1973 to about 1995. And then it, then there was a brief period where it went back up to 2% a year, which was great. It was the sort of the roaring nineties, right? 1995 to 2005 or so. And then it basically flatlined. So we've had very stagnant growth in total factor productivity since about 2005. It's been about 0.3 percent per year. So just really devastating stagnation. And I should I should point out, of course, that these processes are exponential, right? So a change from 2 percent to 0.3 percent is a very big deal. Q compounded over a period of 10, 20, 30 years, that's like real change that has resulted from stagnation, and my estimate is if this had not happened, if the stagnation that began in the 1970s had not happened, Americans would have incomes that are about twice as high today, account- accounting for not only TFP, but also for the capital deepening and the capital accumulation that would be sure to happen. So about twice as high. Everybody's income could be twice as high if we hadn't stagnated, which is just wild to think about.
1: So the question of all questions, WTF happened in 1971. <laughs>
0: Yeah. So my answer for that is that there was a court case called Calvert Cliffs Coordinating Committee versus Atomic Energy Commission, and it was the first case in interpreting a law called NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. And it basically indicated the courts were going to be very serious about enforcing NEPA in a particular way, which was they were going to make sure that that basically nothing could happen until until sort of environmental reviews. Had been thoroughly done, and all the pro- NEPA implementing procedures were, you know, thoroughly followed and developed. And uh, yeah, so that's I think. Know, it sounds, sounds a good thing. So it's
1: environmental protection regulation. So what's the problem with it?
0: It's not environmental protection. It's a, it's an environmental policy that requires the government to document the environmental effects before they do something. While while not imposing any sort of substantive protection. So basically, you could, in principle, say. We are building this industrial plant. It's going to, we're going to emit this much toxic goo. It's going to cause this many cases of cancer, etc. And at the end of that report, the government can still say, and we've decided to greenlight this, this factory, let's say. So that is possible under NEPA. NEPA does not protect uh, the environment substantively. What it does is it creates a process by which people have to have their voices heard right? Uh, the, the, there's there's pro- notice and comment periods. There's also an opportunity to sue under the Administrative Procedure Act. After the report is done, a decision is made, you can sue on the basis of some aspect of that NEPA report was not perfect. Right? The government cut corners, they were arbitrary and capricious in some element of that report, and if the court agrees, then they can send it back and you've got to start over. Or you've got to at least correct the report and uh, yeah. again, probably put it through notice and comment and so on.
1: So that court case, what followed after it, made it much harder to build anything or nuclear power plants general for that matter. Or
0: what was that? Uh, yeah. So the Atomic Energy Commission actually had to stop all nuclear licensing for, I think, 18 months. So completely halted all of its work. While it developed its NEPA implementing procedures, that was the result—the direct report result of that case. And obviously, the case was only interpreting the Atomic Energy Commission's regulations but it applied to the whole government, right? Like the sort of the idea that you have to have these regulations in place and then go through this defined process. That's, mm-hmm. that's anyway, so when people say 1971 was the turning point, that's always yeah. my, my point. And, then, Just, and, I, I don't think, and I don't think NEPA is responsible for 100% of the stagnation, to be clear. Okay, I think it's okay. more like 20 but 20%. It
1: specifically halted nuclear. And nuclear is basically could have continued the Henry Adams curse of sustained energy production, It could have made energy production very clean and would have allowed a whole host of other technological development.
0: Yeah, so that case specifically halted nuclear for about 18 months. Now, some plants did proceed starting in 1973, 1974. But yeah, and it increased the burden of all those plants. And the thing is about nuclear, of course, is that there's always some community nervousness about nuclear, right? So the communities always have concerns when they're putting a nuclear... Power plant in 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 their area because they maybe they don't understand it very well, or there's just they've seen some horror movie or something like that. Nuclear power plants, of course, are very safe in the US, especially. And but what NEPA does is it gives them a handle to drag out the decision to fight it, to fight it in court, to raise the cost of the applicant, and so on. And then the applicant responds by either mothballing the plant, which has happened in a few cases or by just pouring more and more resources into this environmental review process that that by the time they get going with construction it's been years and time is money the plant ends up not very profitable because of all of the that you're extending the timeline over the investor can get their return and so it just really discourages new investment in nuclear right? yeah we
1: discussed that on a previous episode with Stores hall and that was also how he explained that afterwards it would have enabled lots of other technological development. So that really slowed us down in many ways by missing out on nuclear. And we also discussed that nuclear is very safe, very clean and very efficient, obviously. So we really missed the boat there. Where does it bring us now to? Where are the low-hanging fruits now in terms of unlocking economic or technological progress and development?
0: Yeah. So speaking of energy, like one one area that I'm really in- excited for and interested in is geothermal energy. For the last hundred years or more, we've used geothermal energy to make electricity, but it's been at places where it's very obvious at the surface, right? That That there's some geothermal activity going on. So the first geothermal plant, was on the, at the site in Italy. It's called the Valley of the Devil because there's boiling water that comes straight out of the ground, right? And so, pretty obvious that there's steam there. You can run a turbine off of that steam and produce electricity. And it's been going since I think 1906 or something like that. Now, the and that's basically what has happened. What has continued to this day. The biggest the biggest geothermal field in the world is the site in California called the Geysers, which is not really geysers. It's fumaroles, right? It's it's it is volcanic activity there, uh, you know, Iceland, some in Hawaii, a few other, a bunch of other places, New Zealand, again, like near volcanoes, basically, or other sort of very obvious high temperature resources near the surface. And those sites are not everywhere. Obviously, the projects are all bespoke custom projects. And uh, sort of you haven't had to develop the technology to be able to expand where you could do it. Coming out of the oil and gas the shale fields in 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 the U.S. The oil and gas industry's like massive growth actually in the last fifteen years in the U.S. Like we've really perfected a bunch of subsurface engineering techniques, especially fracking. And what this enables is, in principle, you could do geothermal anywhere, right? Start from a place where there's no obvious heat at the surface. If you drill deep enough, you will eventually get to heat, right? So you, you could the simplest way to conceive of this, I think, is you drill two wells. You drill one that you're going to inject water in and one that you're going to produce steam out of. And then conceive of it as just like you're drilling straight down. And then you frack between them, create a fracture network between them so that you put water in your injection. It traverses the sort of the hot rock through all the cracks that you've just created by fracking. And it so all that surface area allows the rock to transfer heat to the water. It becomes super hot, super pressurized steam. And then it comes out the... Production Well, and then you can use that to drive a turbine. And again, in principle, we could do this literally anywhere on the planet if we could drill deeply enough. And, and there's just a ton of this energy, right? If you look at the scientific estimates of like how much heat there is in the earth's crust, it's 40 times more than all the nuclear energy that we have on the planet, including seawater uranium, which is like by far the biggest source of uranium. So it's just a tremendous amount of uh, of heat of a heat resource an energy resource and figuring out how to do this in a repeatable fashion just that will enable you to drive the cost of this down and i think get to a point where we have almost unlimited baseload power it, it is different from other renewables in that you can run it 24 hours a day if you want to right you can also do some load following as well so you can have it output more certain times a day or less other times a day What's holding it back? I think some of it is just technology development, right? And like industry awareness. So this is going to really take off if it takes off because the oil industry sort of transitions to it, right? It's the same skills that we use for oil and gas drilling and fracking are going to be applied to geothermal. Obviously, there'll be like minor differences, right? In terms of what depths you're targeting and what kinds of fracking you're doing. It actually is a little different. It's By and large, the same skills. So part of it is just we need to get people out in the field trying it and trying new methods. And I think once a few people start to succeed, I think that will pull more people in and there'll be a sort of a flywheel effect as, as, oh, this works and we know how to do this and so on. And that will, I think, learning by doing is going to drive the cost of this way -hmm. down. It would be really nice to have new drilling tech, right? Mechanical drills break when they break. It is, the deeper you are when it breaks, the more expensive it is to stop drilling and pull the string all the way out of the hole and then fix it, and then send it all the way back. So it's actually more important the deeper you go that you have durable drilling equipment. So there's a company called Quaze that full disclosure I invested in, it's spun out of MIT, and they're developing millimeter wave drilling capabilities for for the really deep sections, right? For the granite sections. And basically they can use energy to vaporize granite And the hole has a lot of really nice properties that create a melt liner and so on that actually strengthens the hole relative to the surrounding rock and make sure that it's not porous and make sure that it has high integrity and so on. And then I think that the other piece that's maybe holding the industry back a little bit is a permitting issue, right? It is NEPA, which is that a lot of the shallowest resources, including the shallowest resources that are not like obviously volcanoes, they're still in the US, they're tied to federal land. There's a tremendous overlap because most of the the shallow heat resources are in the western half of the United States. The federal government owns a tremendous amount of the west. And so that means you need a permit to to drill. Now, the oil and gas industry had this figured out in 2005. They got a law passed that says basically your oil and gas well is categorically excluded from NEPA. And so basically it takes you about two weeks to get permission to drill an oil and gas well on federal land. Whereas it takes you about two years to drill, you know, same hole, same drilling rig, et cetera. It takes you much longer to drill a hole for geothermal energy. And my policy solution there is, hey, if we do this for oil and gas, we should do the same thing for geothermal. I think that has been pretty well received by the administration. And so I'm pretty hopeful that in the next year or so, we'll start to see movement on that.
1: Uh, So you're working towards making that permitting process easier right now?
0: Exactly. Yeah, I think it should be, very similar to the oil and gas one, right? That you should go, be able to go through what's called the categorical exclusion to NEPA.
1: The problem with nuclear energy is that it has a bad rep and brand. So what chances would you give or would you do you expect nuclear has a chance of a revival or coming back?
0: I think that the biggest problem with nuclear is the same problem that sort of the old version of geothermal had. Everything was incredibly bespoke and custom everything is in the modern nuclear industry in the u.s a, a unique every reactor every plant is unique and then we never got to the point of we're going to have one plant design that and we're just going to make a sort of a cookie cutter version of that plant design everywhere if we figured out how to do we're going to have one of these and we're going to do a hundred of them one one design, and we're going to do 100 or 200 or 1,000, right? If you did, that's how you drive the cost of nuclear down. The problem with doing every plant bespoke is that you drive up the cost and then the energy actually from nuclear is not that cheap. That's the thing is that from existing plants is not that cheap. So what you need is some sort of repeatable process for driving down the cost. And that's hard to do. The NRC has not always been the most cooperative agency. But I, ultimately, I do think It's part of the blame lies with the NRC, but part of it lies with the industry for not doing, not making better decisions, right, about the kinds of plants that they're going to deploy. And so I think that the biggest opportunity for nuclear in the sort of medium term is much smaller plants. Sometimes people talk about small modular. I'm not even sure that some of those smaller modular reactors are small enough, like smaller the better, because you you get approval for one, and then there'll be demand for like many more, right? So it could be even targeting the diesel generator market, right? Right. You know, there's 1000s of I don't know how many maybe millions of diesel generators in the United States. What if you could replace every diesel generator in the country with a tiny nuclear reactor, then you're turning these out by the 1000s. And that is what's going to drive the cost down.
1: Yeah, a bit more of a mainstream narrative, not the one that, that we're obviously, the discourse that we're in is that, hey, we need to A, grow less, right? Because we're pumping less bad stuff into the air. B, we need to replace our fossil fuel-based sources of energy with wind and solar. And C, we need battery storage to make it all work and to make it able to power electric cars. What would you respond to someone who has that narrative or that story?
0: I think that there's a lot in there that, that I can work with right that I'm happy to go along with I oh, I disagree with the conclusion of degrowth right I want to grow faster but I think electric cars to take a starting point are great right they're better than fossil cars they you don't have to change the oil You don't have to like have problems with your spark plugs there's fewer moving parts in general so maintenance is easier the acceleration is better the fuel is cheaper right like you can charge up at home and it's more convenient you only have to fill up outside of your home like when you're on long road trips right like you net, like for most people unless you go on a long road trip maybe like once or twice a year you never have to fill up outside the home so it's just a better product right? And so that's great. I think that I do take environmental considerations seriously. So I think I'm re- one thing I'm really excited for, in addition to the climate benefits of electric vehicles, is the reduction of particulate matter and the air pollution. The There is a really convincing and aggregate literature on the negative effects of air pollution. You see it in all kinds of things. Chess grandmasters perform worse when it's A particularly smoggy day than things like when they took away, when they introduced easy pass on the New Jersey Turnpike, you had a reduction in in premature births, right? Because of the sort of the reduction in sort of diesel engines idling on the parkway. So it's just, so I'm really excited for that. I think that is a completely legitimate form of progress that I want to see. So where do the challenges come in? I think like one challenge is how do we produce enough batteries? right i think that the battery industry is going to grow so fast over the next 20 years they're going to double and double and double and it still won't be enough i think our demand for batteries is going to be insatiable for the for the foreseeable future i would take issue of course with the idea that wind and solar are the only forms of electricity that we should have of course we should of course we should have wind and solar but we should also have nuclear and geothermal and maybe some other forms as well solar is going to be i think very cheap in the future particularly if we can keep the cost of panels coming down i think there's valid disagreement about like how cheap they'll get some people i think are too optimistic but they're cheap like you said like they would need storage and there's going to always be scarcity of storage because we're going to want the batteries for cars and not for uh, solar storage so that's a challenge the other thing i would say is that for those of us who care about sort of material progress and industrial progress I think that the climate movement is actually kind of aligned. Right. And one thing that I've found is that when I talk to people, it's like, yeah, we need to build like a ton of clean energy. If the more they care about the climate, the more they agree with me. So I think that what's interesting is that we're starting to see a little bit of a split in the environmental movement between the climate activists who completely recognize the need to build at least wind and solar, if not also geothermal and nuclear. And they also see a need to build new transmission and to build new forms of transportation and so on. And that is very aligned with my view that we need to be able to build stuff in this country, including including a lot of physical world infrastructure that is blocked by things like local vetocracy and, and regulations that are hard to deal with. And so I see a ton of alignment for those of us who are technological progressives in terms of, yeah. uh, of dealing with climate. And of course, like the only way we're going to solve climate is by advancing technology. And so I think I, I always try to work with people when they express strong environmental views. that I agree on a lot of things. And I think that there's a lot of natural alignment that's been overlooked for a long time.
1: Yeah. Also, wind and solar is also facing some of the same problems that other technologies are facing. I just know it from some anecdotal evidence, but solar has a big permitting issue. But right? if you want to put a solar cell on your rooftop and onto the grid in Germany... There is a very bureaucratic permitting process, which is sometimes very costly for small households. Similarly, in Africa, it's very hard to build solar and wind farms on a scale that are necessary because of the. It's extremely hard to do business anyway to get permits. It often takes years, and it's just prohibitively expensive. And then you need to, especially, what you want to work in multiple jurisdictions.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's all true, and and I've I've heard mostly about the U.S experience with grid scale solar, let's say, it takes actually a lot of land, you need to have a lot of land to do a big solar power plant. And you know, a lot of times that might be federal land, right? NEPA, guess what, you're there, or you need some other federal permit to connect to transmission or whatever. And there's going to be NEPA there too, right? And the NEPA covers not just the NEPA review covers not just the connection to the transmission, which is what you're trying to get approval for. It's it covers the building of the plant. begin with so you've got to deal with all this like land use requirements and then there's conservation groups right the other half of the environmental movement that is i think they care about climate but that's not where their focus is it's more on biodiversity and and conserving the habitats and species that we have now and they're like yeah we want clean energy but we don't want you to take up this much land for it and like this is this land is a habitat for some species that happens to live there or sometimes it's even like a plant, a fern, a rare fern is there, and this will ruin the habitat for that, that species. And so yeah, so I think, again, there's like a ton of alignment. And as you say, there's like a lot of permitting issues. Yeah. The other, we
1: met at an event by the Foresight Institute a weekend ago. And that's also another point you can bring in the debate, why we need technological progress to fix the climate. You talked about geoengineering, right, as a potential solution that would also require a lot of progress.
0: Yeah. So my high level view on geoengineering is that we have a ton of options. We have like an embarrassment of riches in terms of all the different things that we could do in principle to either cool the planet directly or to remove carbon dioxide from from the atmosphere or to do some other form of ecosystem management or ecosystem engineering to either cope with the effects of climate change or directly offset them or whatever. And so there's just so many opportunities But I think there is this question of who who is allowed to do this? And if you tried to do a bunch of iron seating or whatever, would you get, would you get hauled into court or, or being told to do some permitting first, et cetera. So yeah, I believe like on a technological level, like we, we have most of the tools we need to deal with the climate issue, but it's the social layer and the coordination that's much harder to deal with.
1: Yeah, it's like I, at the beginning, when I wanted to start my career, was also very interested in I was initially on, so on the economics and policy side. And what deterred me from it, what I think can also be deterring for many other people who want to make an impact in energy and in climate, is just the sheer amount of politics you have to deal with. How many people you need to convince that, plus on top, it's a very capital-intensive industry. Capital-intensive industries are generally harder to enter for outsiders right because you just have to raise much more money to get even started right so you have to work a lot with the entrenched interests to get that kind of money to get anything started are there any opening that you see or any advice you could give to young entrepreneurs who hear what we're saying and who want to help fix the climate
0: yeah i think that one piece of advice would just be embrace the the hardness of the problem right so i actually think that sort of the, these physical, so I think a lot of people are tempted to go into software, right? Or to go in, go into machine learning or something. Like there's no regulation. There's tons of advances. You can make money very quickly. And those are all good things. But I actually really like the physical world industries because it's a ton of capital. You have to do a ton of, of raising, but it's cool to be like a titan of industry, right? That's fun. The regulatory problems are significant, but they're actually really fun to work on right? You have to approach it with the right mindset. And then the third thing is that if you go into software, it's like you can have some app or something, and somebody can copy you right away. And like you lose out because you were like the second best company to to do some pretty easy thing. So you have no moat, right? Like you you do this light, easy thing, and somebody else does it slightly better than you, and they become a billionaire, and you're like still poor and eating ramen. And with more hard tech industries, like nobody else is going to be crazy enough to do what you're doing. And so, just do the hard thing and and embrace the challenge of it, and you'll have a built in moat because nobody else is going to be crazy enough to do it.
1: Love it. Please talk a bit more about why or in what ways it's fun to deal with the regulatory challenges
0: It's like a strategy problem, right? it's like a it's you're trying to you're trying to figure out what you can get out of it. It is. Not purely like a zero-sum thing, right? You can you do develop relationships with the people that you're working with, and so on. But it's just fun. I think it's like a fun mode of problem solving, of like how do I, how do I get this rule to be changed? And here are the different things, resources at my disposal, and here are the different potential levers that I could act with, and so on. And you develop a strategy and you execute it, and it's interesting, right? I think it's interesting in a way that merely trying to get some code to compile isn't.
1: Yeah, for sure. You learn a lot about human nature.
0: Yes, (laughs)
1: exactly. Everything. But how can you get started solving these regulatory challenges when you start out? Is there like a lobby group or a caucus or an organization that you can go to that helps you overcome some of these things?
0: I think that doesn't really exist in in most industries. There's industry associations, right? But they're usually geared towards helping the incumbents, not necessarily helping the new entrants. So you you have to be an outsider right you, you, you have to be an outsider right and so you you might want to join you may or may not want to join the incumbent industry association if you're uh, if you're a startup but but yeah i think that it the initial phase of your company usually you're trying to meet your technical milestones still right and so the regulatory burden it does ramp up slowly right you you don't have to deal with it usually on day 1 you don't have to figure out how to get licensed or something like that right you're b- building your technical milestones and gradually adding on the more and more sophisticated regulatory capability right to shift
1: gears a bit about a different topic i think that was a really amazing tour de france into the world of energy why is air travel not getting any faster you already talked about it in the beginning you work with boom but why is it not getting any faster
0: yeah i think that the biggest obstacle in the industry, is sort of the near-term obstacle that I was working on, was landing and takeoff noise. But I think the biggest obstacle in terms of market size and in terms of enabling the industry to really flourish is the overland ban over the United States and most countries. Right. So in 1973, the United States put in a supersonic ban, a, ban, a speed limit. Basically, no civil aircraft could fly faster than Mach one. And they did that for a number of reasons. One is because there's a legitimate issue of sonic boom. Sonic booms can be loud, particularly if you have a Concorde-type aircraft that has no boom reduction aerodynamics built in. And then also, I think it was partially for mercantilist reasons, right? Like the U.S. had a supersonic program through about 1971, and then it was canceled. And they were like, "We can't let." Europe just take this whole market and so we're going to make sure that it's illegal for them to fly between from New York to L- to LA let's say on on a European airplane. So I think this combination of both probably either one could have been sufficient for the overland ban to happen. But in any case it happened and I think the paper that I wrote with Sam Hammond in 2016 is we argued look this ban what it really does is it cuts off the natural entry point into the market. The natural entry point into the market is a small, say six passenger private jet, right? It's smaller. So it has a lower boom. And then also like the, the owner of the private jet doesn't care that much about efficiency and because they're rich and they're not very price sensitive in terms of fuel consumption and so on. And so that is the market where this should have gotten started. Now, the problem is that private jets fly about 75% of their miles over land, not over the water and effectively made that impossible with this with can't you're not going to buy one private jet for 25% of your miles and then another private jet for 75% of your miles. And so it just doesn't work anymore to have a a supersonic private jet which means that the entry point has to be an airliner which means that it has to be you've got to be building basically for the transoceanic market. So you can have I think with airliners it's about 50% miles flown over the ocean versus 50% over land, but they can be different planes, right? Because, so you could have a plane that is specializes in transoceanic flight. It's still not clear that that's big enough, right? So this, the issue with the supersonic market is that there's still debates over how big is the market for that kind of plane. So say like a boom style plane, right? And when I was there, I think we argued, like, oh, there's a market for 2000 of these just factoring in over water routes. And then you different sets of assumptions including some that are maybe more realistic and they push the market size down to 500 or lower and then it starts getting to the point where is it really worth the engine developer's time to put resources into developing an engine for a plane with a market that's only set a few hundred and maybe they don't even capture that whole market and so the sort of the, the scale of the market doesn't get big enough and so m- my contention would be that if you got rid of the overland ban, you increase the size of the market and you enable it for private jets as well. You'd start to see a lot more investment from the whole ecosystem, from the whole aviation ecosystem in supersonic flight and uh, and that would push us forward. One of the things I look at, I've looked at is what is the speed of transoceanic travel, commercial transoceanic travel. And it started in the you know, 1930s, I forget how many miles per hour it was going. And then we got the sort of the first high altitude airplanes, then we got the first jets, and then we got the Concorde. And it's increasing, not quite expo- exponentially, maybe even like linearly. But if you just kept that trend going to today, we'd be flying at Mach 4, right, which is four four to five times faster than we're going today, about five times faster than we're going today. And it would take you between new york and london in under two hours and and then and then if you allow that over the united states you you could get between new york and la in 90 minutes or something like that and that's where that's where we should be and instead we're actually flying slower today in most cases than we were in 1958 when the 707 entered service across the atlantic so it's it's been not just stagnation but regression in aviation and i think it's driven almost entirely by this by this ban over over the united states where in, where instead there should be a noise standard right there should be a rule that says okay you can only make a sonic boom so loud the rule could be one number during the day and a different number at night right when people are you may have to be quieter at night to fly supersonic fine but there should be at least some number you could in theory hit and do that yeah
1: i'm wondering because people made that rule back then about the speed limit instead of the noise level and they were probably not thinking or knowing about these unintended consequences that followed, right? So maybe there's also unintended consequences when you regulate for the level of noise.
0: I think there's, it's definitely true. It wasn't that they weren't thinking about it. It was that they, they made an error in judgment. Right. They explicitly in the rulemaking where they introduced the supersonic ban. Remember this rule that I talked about earlier that Congress set out that it's got to be economically reasonable and technologically practicable and appropriate for the kind of aircraft while protecting the environment like that existed in the 1970s. Right. And so that was already in place. And what they did to justify the Overland ban is they said, look, this is not going to hold back supersonic development. There's there. Even if even with this ban, there's still a market for more than 500 planes. Right. And so we and we project that, in fact, there will be more than 500 planes, supersonic planes on the market or in operation within some number of years, like within 10 years or something like that. Right. And what we saw instead, of course, was only 14 Concords entered service. And, that, and that's all we've seen other than there was some there's a Russian plane as well that saw a limited service. And they made a huge error in forecasting the market. And it's time to correct
1: yeah. My point is that I think that the problem is with how we make decisions, right? So when we release a new software to production for the market, we get feedback from the market. It has bugs, right? So we are attracting it, fixing it, and then re-releasing it. Like we have a new version, right? A 2.0, a 3.0 in software development in other industries that goes faster. When it comes to regulation, which is also a product, like we want to optimize for safety and efficiency in the best case... That's just not the case, right? Now, I talked about this in another episode with John Chisholm, something like sunset clauses. Hey, what if this regulation lasts only for 10 years? And afterwards, you have to do like an impact review of something Mm -hmm. to assess what did actually happen, and then you can either confirm it or you can adapt it, right?
0: Yeah, I think that there's validity to that. I think the problem is that almost every regulation is in place because of some real concern right and it's not a fake made up issue in most cases and the real harm from regulations does not come from any one rule it comes from their totality it comes from it's not the one pebble in the stream it's the giant pile of pebbles in the stream that creates a dam and so what we actually have to do is to be willing to say some there are valid concerns that people have that we are going to choose not to address in regulation. And that is extremely hard for government institutions to to commit to right? Yeah, especially incredibly hard for, say, politicians, right? The bosses of the bureaucrats, for the politicians to commit to, like there could be, you know, if there's a plane crash, there's no politician who's out there saying the optimal number of plane crashes is greater than zero. And this sort of lax level of regulation has allowed the industry to flourish and driven costs of transportation down. And that benefit outweighs the cost of occasional accident. They don't say that, right? And so I, I think it's really hard to get to a state where we pre commit, we're not gonna we're not gonna solve every problem with regulation.
1: Yeah, and that's I think where the innovation needs to happen in the mode how we make decisions. How does this process look like, right? When we if, if we're able to get to a point where these decisions get made with more like feedback from the market, where we can take we, we can fix errors more easily. So I think that's something but to shift gears a little bit to a couple of more rapid fire not rapid fire questions but just about a couple of other issues i was curious about what's your bet with robin hansen about colonizing mars
0: oh let's see a few years ago robin was soliciting views on when will we get to mars when will we do it will we get there by 2030 and specifically and so I was not, at the time, I was, I, I took seriously the idea that Starship, that Sp- which is the big mega rocket that X has under development, it's rapidly reusable, it's uh, refuelable on orbit and stuff. Like it is a Mars rocket. Uh, you know, I was like, okay, you know, I, you know, maybe a 40% chance that we can get that there will be a human standing on Mars by I ended up looking at like when when the launch windows are right. And I think there's one in 2029. That would put a human standing on 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 Mars by I think I I added a, a little bit of buffer, but I said Q, by end of Q1 2030, I think that a rocket or I think that a human could be standing on Mars. And uh, and Robin gave me two to one odds, which I, I wouldn't have taken it at even odds, but I took it at two to one odds. And so I'm not super confident that will be hit. But I think that we will see the first Orbital launch of Starship here in the next six months. And then get, you've got to get it qualified for humans and you've got to prove that you can do the refueling. And there's a lot that needs to happen. But uh, in principle, there could be a, a cargo mission that launches in 2026 to Mars and drops off some supplies for the first settlers. And then to a little of 26 months later, maybe they would launch humans. What's your case for Ethereum maximalism? Does it still hold up? Yeah. So I do think it still holds up. My view is that basically anything you can do with Bitcoin, you can do with Ethereum, but not vice versa. Right? So Ethereum is better in, in, in a bunch of important senses than Bitcoin is. In particular, if what you care about is like a fixed money supply, well, you can do that on Ethereum today with just having a to- so some token that could I- issue 21 million Eli coins and implement a smart contract that guarantees that there will never be more than 21 million Eli coins. And we have a fixed monetary supply. And I can do that right now. What matters is how useful the base layer is that you're transacting on. And I think Ethereum has this view that there's a lot of progress still to be made. And there's a lot of development still to happen. Whereas Bitcoin, the Bitcoin community has taken the view that layer one is close to frozen. We're not going to really change, make any major changes and so on. And man, I just think we're in such early days of crypto. I think there's a lot of development still to happen. So the Ethereum community more aligns with that value of mine, and and so I, I just think that there's a, a ton more opportunity to do things on Ethereum versus versus Bitcoin. So was, the title was a little, of that piece was a little tongue in cheek. I was just trying to rib a few people, but yeah. So I do, but I am a f- big fan of the Ethereum ecosystem and love the emphasis on developing the technology while also trying to maintain credible neutrality which is what I think is important. I'm not as interested as some people are in the monetary piece of it, of having a, a coin that is independent from sort of central banks or whatever. I think that's incredibly important for if you live in Argentina or Brazil or in a bunch of other countries, that's incredibly important. Not so much for people who live, say, in the US. Is the United
1: States overall still a great place to innovate?
0: That's a great question. So, y- you know, what's interesting is... Yes, it is still the best place to innovate, I think, for for a a lot of dimensions, maybe not all of them. But in terms of certainly in terms of rule of law, still works. It's pretty reliable. If you write a contract, it will be enforced. That's phenomenal. That is we should not take that for granted. That is not the case in a lot of the world. Concentration of talent, right? Like huge market, right? So if you get your product gets approved in the US, you have 300-something million rich people to sell to, which, again, not the case in most markets. Just in physical security, right? No one, like, this has become sadly relevant with the events in Ukraine, right? But nobody is going to invade the U.S. Like, you could not, literally could not do it. There's nobody that could do it. So physical security. I think that the U.S. has so many advantages in, in many aspects of the global economy the paradox is that it has not always had to be a well-governed country to function. Our institutions are kind of crappy. Permitting being being one example, but you could say zoning or another a lot of local government is just abysmal in quality. But yeah, it's, it still has so many advantages that certainly I think a lot of people should still consider moving to the US if they want to do something ambitious.
1: Yeah. So any alternative options or exit options from the United States that you think are underrated or interesting to propel some of these innovations that we were talking about, like nuclear energy or or geothermal or whatever?
0: I am all for people taking doing regulatory arbitrage when they can find an arbitrage that works. The challenge is, especially in the hard tech industries that I follow most closely, you really do need a big market, right? So it's not a question of can I get some tiny jurisdiction somewhere to approve me to operate? It's how can I scale to a massive market as quickly as possible? And if that's your question, exit becomes really hard. You need I think it would be great to convince India <laughs> to engage in some regulatory arbitrages. And I love the idea of the sort of the smaller scale regulatory arbitrages where you can do it. But it just, it simply, I think, does not work for a lot of hard tech. I think there's some testing related stuff, right? If you want to test drones or or something like that. I know there's a project in the US to use an, an Indian reservation to to be to create a financial zone, right? And I don't know if that legally checks out. I don't know if that's going to work. But like, where you can take advantage of an arbitrage, like absolutely, like people should do it. It's just that if what you need to succeed is not just regulatory arbitrage for development, but for deployment, right? If you need to be able to deploy in a big market to be able to ever be profitable, it's really hard to take advantage of those arbitrages.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see the case for being a launch pad or a greenfield, right? So mm-hmm. many entrepreneurs in some of these fields, nuclear energy, or drones, they already need to talk to multiple jurisdictions to get more shots on goal, to get approval, <laughs> right, right. Google less, less energy was talking about getting approved in Romania, Poland, or the UK. Right, and I see many of these kinds of entrepreneurs. But there's like this chicken and egg problem. They, these regulators haven't seen it before. They want to have data. They want to get. They want to see that you already have capital, right? But to attract that capital and to provide that data that's safe that others are using, I think some of these special jurisdictions could be used as a launchpad, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's right. Then the other thing to keep in mind in aerospace and nuclear, both of those industries have export controls. So the challenge is like in aerospace, a lot of things that look like a rocket engine or a, or an advanced supersonic engine look also like a an ICBM motor or a cruise missile motor, right? So a lot of these a lot of these propulsion technologies in aerospace are closely controlled, especially the high-speed ones. And the US is not going to let you export that technology around the world without their saying it's okay. And the same thing is true with nuclear. If any, anytime you're doing anything with like highly enriched uranium, you're going to have a hard time. I think that there is certainly scope, as you said, like for as a launch pad, proof of developing, proofs of concept and stuff. But you just got to stay out of these I- industries where there's export controls.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes when I hear this, or that when we're discussing this, I find it a bit, I get a bit sad, right? Because in the end, there's all these barriers, Right between different markets jurisdictions and it's very rare that we can reduce these barriers right within Europe we got more or less open borders and free trade which is great and just an example of how it can work and within the United States with different states but overall right now it seems to me that there's a more of a you know there is a risk that countries and jurisdictions are becoming less open right
0: yeah, I think it's definitely happening actually. One way to view the last 100 years is the US basically bribed everyone to join their alliance against the Soviets, right? So if you certainly like you can think about like the opening with China in the 1970s, right? R- Richard Nixon goes to China and opens up. It's okay, we're we're bribing you to oppose to not side with the Soviets. And um, and so we're going to be friends and we're going to we're going to trade with you and so on. And that that's gone, right? The the Berlin Wall fell, the Soviet Union collapsed, and so the sort of like the argument that the U and it's not the only argument, but it's the one that the U.S. was actually using, to I think, to justify that relationship with with China. That whole basis is gone. It, it, there was some overhang, and we had a, a rapid growth in China because of the trade that that the U.S. was willing to do with it. And trade is mutually beneficial, and I'm all for free trade. But I think in terms of the justification that the government sort of internal to the U.S. was doing for it, like it kind of evaporated. I fear that we are moving to a a more siloed world where there's not a single global market. We're moving further away from a single global market in a lot of dimensions.
1: Yeah, so uh, my hope is really instead of the decentralizing pressure of a lot of what's happening in the world of blockchain for example which showed really the possibility that hey it just takes a technology and especially in that case it grew an industry to a scale where it had to educate millions of people in the arguments why it's better to have decentralized money. I'm hoping that can make a lot of people think how to decentralize other things as well, and build industries around it that have their own vested interests in building alternatives and doing it better. And that's kind of my hope to make things more open in the end.
0: Yeah, and to be clear, like I, I'm, I love that idea, and I'm was very certainly like very enamored with it. it kind of part of my dissertation was written on centralized versus decentralized technologies. And, and I think that my, my only caveat is, yeah, it depends on which industry it's like very, it's very, it's very fact specific in terms of when it works, when it doesn't. And I think like where I would disagree with someone like say like Balaji Srinivasan, who's, who I'd consider a friend is I think that while doing these sort of decentralizing experiments, like it's not realistic to think that the U S is going to evaporate or go away and, and that everything would be fine if it did. I think that actually, so many still, even to this day, so many public goods provided by the U.S. specifically uh, for the for the rest of the world. It would be it'd be very hard to imagine a world where that all goes away. Like one, one like very minor example, not even like a large piece of it. It would be like. The global positioning system, right? Like the GPS satellites. Without No U.S., no GPS. If there's no U.S., there's no GPS, like on your okay. phone. And that's just, that's not even the biggest public good that the U.S. is providing for the rest of the world.
1: What I like is that it helps us start thinking, and I think in many ways it raises some interesting frontiers where we can apply the same logic. One interesting one is decentralized science, for example. Right, So science funding is very centralized, and now there's a movement with DAOs that's using crypto money to fund longevity research, which is something that's hard to get funding for because aging is not considered a disease. And there is other ways to think about solving or fixing some of these things through decentralizing technology or pressure, and just replace the existing public goods that the United States or other countries provide. Yeah. with better alternatives without hurting anyone in the process right because you can start these experiments on a small scale right and you can have them through voluntary opt in
0: yeah and so i'm 100% on board with that but i would also say in some ways it's too literal right like you could have decentralized funding even within the us like just get, if you could take like half of the nihs budget nihs budget and split it into two nihs Right. That would be like more decentralized and that would be good. That would be a huge win, actually, because any one institution is going to get is going to get captured. Right. And so have take the budget and just split it in half and have one agency that like continues being the NIH and then another agency that does something like a little bit different. I think even that kind of decentralization. Yeah. But has still, varied. what you need to do
1: is, I think, in many ways, reducing the barriers to entry right? And yes. the barrier to entry or to get that force pressure on the NIH or another like public agency is just much higher that you need, right? So when you have lower barriers to entry, you can just have a much higher number of young entrepreneurs just try out something different, right? Yes. When a hundred people or a thousand people try, one of them is going to be like Vitalik Buterin Ethereum.
0: I completely agree. So all these are just like, all my points are just like caveats on on, on your points.
1: I also ultimately agree that it would be a mistake to underestimate the power and the stickiness and also the achievements of what the United States is doing in terms of providing public goods, in terms of providing a good commercial and legal basis for international trade and the ecosystem it built for innovation inside the country that is riverbating in the rest of the world, Silicon Valley and everything else built.
0: Yeah, it would be great if, if more countries would try to actually compete seriously with that i think it would be awesome
1: exactly if europe could catch up to the standards in the united states when it comes to many things such as incorporating a business or doing like a VC fund which is what i'm doing it's still much much easier five times easier and less costly and less bureaucratic than in europe yeah
0: yeah totally else
1: that we haven't talked about yet that you'd love to talk about
0: over the last week people have been really excited about ai right and so people are really thrilled with the sort of the progress with chat gpt specifically and and the exciting progress there which i which i do think is progress but i think people overrate how much that's going to solve a lot of economic problems what i would suggest ending with is just like a bit of realism about how much can we innovate if we just if we have unlimited if we say we have unlimited content because these generative AIs are producing tons of content content isn't that scarce and we still don't have a problem we don't have a solution for NEPA and we don't have a solution for the NRC and you don't have any it doesn't help with like clean energy deployment and getting stuff through the FDA regulatory process so how do we so I think there's a lot of people who want to be optimistic about stuff, and and there is like genuine, exciting progress in AI. My take is just to be a little more circumspect about what will this actually do in the world.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's I'm used to really not jumping on any public hype about any kind of technology, mm-hmm. because that's extremely rarely of any time, really, where the changes happen, at least the ones that are interesting for me as a VC. It's almost always the ones that are happening on the margin with people that have a very different kind of outside view and not the thing that's in everyone's shopping window right now
0: yeah exactly
1: yeah so Eli it was absolutely epic to do this tour de France through technology innovation and regulation collect so many of your learnings on how to do regulatory hacking and help unleash a new wave of technological progress Eli anything else that you would like to draw attention to? Um, Who are you looking to collaborate with? What do you need right now? How can people find you if they want to reach out to you?
0: You can find me online, a bunch of places. So my main home is the Center for Growth and Opportunity, which is a research center at uh, Utah State University. So we're at thecgo.org. And I have great colleagues there who are also working on this idea of abundance and how do we drive that forward? Easiest way to follow my work is just follow me on Twitter, just Eli Dorado on Twitter. One word. Yeah, look forward to staying in touch with a lot of your listeners. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Eli, for coming on the show. My pleasure.